This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. And today we're pleased to have Arya Aryan with us to talk about his new book, The Post-War Novel and the Death of the Author, a book published by Palgrave in 2020. Arya is a professor, is an associate professor of literature in Istanbul. He'll tell us more about himself. Arya, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very much for the time and the opportunity for me. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, as you said, I'm an assistant professor in English literature. I did my PhD in postmodern and contemporary literature and the medical humanities from Durham University in the UK. I also carried out a postdoctoral research fellowship um, at the University of Tübingen. And my research interests are postmodernism, contemporary literature, the medical humanities, also digital humanities. Um, I've published a few articles and a couple of books, including this one, The Post-War Novel and The Death of the Author. It's all yours. <laughs> yeah, well, we should ask about uh, your upcoming work as well. Uh, the Post-War Novel and The Death of the Author. Tell us how the book came about and what is the premise of the book? Yeah, actually... Um, it, it was an attempt to reveal and examine different functions and concepts of authorship in fiction and theory before the death of the author debate, during and after that, so it's from the 1950s and 1960s to the present moment. It also reveals a trajectory of some of the modes and functions of the novel in the last few decades, up to the present moment almost. And its main argument is that the explicit terms of much of the theoretical and philosophical debate around the death of the author in the moment of hype theory in the 1980s uh, have hardly been engaged in literary fictions by writers including Samuel Beckett, Borges, Muriel Spark, Sylvia Plath, Doris Lessing, Vladimir Nabokov. Um, so it, it examines the authorship debate before, during, and after the death of the author debate came to prominence in the 1980s. And and in the first chapter, you provide this trajectory of all these 
uh, these these discussions, these debates about not not necessarily the debates, what the, the theory, the rise of high theory, and the concept of the death of uh, uh, the author. Can you briefly tell us about this rise of theory and the concept of the death of the author and what it means for the uninitiated? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, actually, it all starts in the nineteen sixties, as we can, if we can find a you know kind of beginning. But more specifically, it's the 1967 with the publication of Roland Barthes, um, highly influential and acclaimed essay, The Death of the Author. Uh, so it could be regarded as the moment of the rise of theory. And when we say theory, we're, we, we're referring to it with a capital T, but sometimes high theory, which refers to the 1980s. So which was associated predominantly with three key figures, uh, those we know as postmodernists, Roland Barthes, Jacques Derrida, and Michel Foucault. So these three key figures um, challenge the foundations upon which modern intellectual Western philosophy and history, let's say since René Descartes, uh, had been built. So including its assumptions concerning the subject origins of the work, the work of art in the mind of the artist or the writer. So it, it, it was a radical theory of revolution, and it's also known as the theory, as I said, with capital T. Um, this is the moment when the concept of creativity and authorship, which is grounded in humanist and romantic or expressionist concept of subjectivity, is challenged. So we can say 1967 marks this radical change and challenge. Another literary figure or philosophical figure is Jacques Derrida. He uh, put forward his theory in structure, sign, and play in the discourse of human sciences. It was again late 1960s, which questioned the foundation upon which the Anglo-American literary and critical tradition rests, such as the assumption that literature is an objective medium uh, through which truth is delivered, and by truth is meant reflection of either an internal reality, as in the case of romantic poets, or even modernists, or an external reality, like as we've got in literary realism. So his argument made clear that a final meaning is an illusion due to the deferral or perpetual deferral of meaning, which is intrinsic to the linguistic system. And um, so any degree of fixity or stability of meaning um, and knowledge is is just an illusion uh, rather than reality. So because he said there is nothing outside the text, this is his um, dictum, his famous slogan, right? Language is a system, is self-referring and always therefore focused on itself uh, rather than an outside reality. So then there is no way to directly know the world um, outside it. Um, and what, what you said about there reminded me of current culture where in the US, you know, that there's no reality, but but that's a whole different story anyway. It's a whole different kind of worms. Uh, what I particularly liked about the book was, and that was an aspect that I hadn't thought about myself, and that's the patriarchal aspect of the idea of uh, the death of an author or authorship in general. It's something that always escaped me, but uh, you specifically you devote one chapter to this, um, the theories of authorship in the 1960s and how uh, female writers were writing back or writing about that. So can you talk about uh, 
uh, how, how, let's say, this idea of authorship was oblivious to the questions of gender? Yeah, actually, the idea of uh, bringing feminists into my consideration was uh, that of Professor Patricia Wall, and I'm very thankful for her, uh, to, to keep the balance and, you know, fairness. Uh, it all starts with the feminist discourse of the 1970s, but even before that, because because feminist discourses did not just appear in the 1970s with um, key figures that we know, like German Gruyere, Millet, Firestone, and others. Um, although Virginia Woolf is an exception, had expressed the question of female authorship in a room of one's own. However, historically speaking, notions of creativity and authorship are primarily male concepts so associated with masculinity because women are denied, or historically speaking, we're denied agency, authorship, and creativity, all functions of the mind. Uh, so this is what Simone de Beauvoir calls out. Um, she calls out this patriarchal uh, mind-body dichotomy where man is mind or represents mind or is associated with the mind, the intellect, creativity, activity, rationality. Uh, she calls transcendence, while women are flesh, are considered as flesh, objects to which things happen. They're irrational. Uh, she calls it imminence. So they're driven by biological forces. Um, so there is hardly any literary canon for women before the moment of high theory. So when we talk about the death of the author, uh, we need to have uh, first or establish an author to remove. But for women writers, there was never been a time where they were considered as authors. So now at the time of the death of the author debate, uh, women found it the right moment to expressed their concerns with patriarchal discourses that have dominated society and literary cultures uh, by bringing to the fore obsessions and concerns and problems that uh, kind of uh, vexed all women uh, on the patriarchy. So women writers in particular um, try to counteract or challenge um, these male-dominated discourses. Uh, these male-dominated discourses, so they wanted to establish themselves, uh, their own self, actually, and be recognized as authors for the first time. And uh, these female authors, they resort to the idea of madness, right, to liberate that fiction from that those patriarchal association. Can you talk about that concept as well? Yes, um, it's a good question, actually. Although female writers in the 1960s and 70s didn't very much seem to be happy with uh, the death of the author debate for the reasons I just briefly explained, they made use of postmodernists' uh, critique of uh, the so-called universal categories of knowledge and value which actually exclude um, entire communities or groups of people or minorities and of claiming objectivity for knowledge which uh, actually just serves some um, purposes. So the patriarchal binary that women are driven by irrational emotional responses and forces and are um, actually subject to or prone to madness, such as hysteria, um, is one of those concepts or patriarchal concepts of binaries that women, female writers, 
actually set out to challenge and question. So they deconstructed this binary uh, by drawing on uh, post-modernist ideas, even before Jacques Derrida formulated deconstruction. And that's that's a very interesting point, I think. So we should bear in mind that hysteria, which was usually a term um, um, associated with women and femininity, it means suffering in the womb or uterus. Um, and we should also bear in mind that the, the, the term hysterectomy, which is a surgery, is a removal of the womb or uterus that comes from the same root. So given the uh, prevailing discourses, uh, connecting creativity and art with madness, uh, these women writers were particularly subject uh, to be regarded, sorry, not women writers, women in general, uh, were particularly subject to be called mad or hysteric. Um, and the intellectual life was regarded as a threat to the female well-being. So it was actually, hysteria was called the female disease. So intellectual life includes education and creativity. So they were denied uh, or were discouraged to pursue any intellectual life, including education and creativity, as they would be driven to madness, according to that patriarchal notion. So now to liberate women and femininity from this binary opposition, uh, madness like hysteria uh, could be challenged into a reverse discourse. And that's what many female writers did, describing the conditions of women's uh, suffering under patriarchy uh, or under patriarchal law and uh, seen as a consequence of identity production under patriarchy. It's a, it's a kind of madness against madness that these female writers are actually performing in the poetry and the different literary works and novels. So in other words, they wrote about madness to reveal the patriarchal conditions which drive women mad. That madness is not a an essentialist biological female disease, uh, but it's a function or outcome of a patriarchal system. So a mad person and also a mad person doesn't have much agency and control, right? Because he or she is driven by, you know, irrationality. So female writers um such as Sylvia Plath, Lessing, Muriel Spark, um, they, they resort to madness to portray female characters who deconstruct the, fem the, the patriarchal concept of um, the feminine self. And this is what um, Simone de Beauvoir calls the myth of the eternal feminine, an attempt to reconstruct or create or find the true self, the true feminine self. So I give you an example. Silver Platt creates another myth, that of Dionysus, the, the ancient god, um, as, as this god embodies both a deconstruct, sorry, a destructive and a creative force. So her poetry and novel are replete with um, images or references to kind of savage god who self-destroys and creates itself or resurrects. So the, the, the first way to female agency is liberating the body from the essentialist view, that women are biologically prone to hysteria. And now, yet yeah, this liberation requires self-destruction, therefore suicide, which is 
kind of dominant in Sigurd Plath poetry, novel, and her life. For her, as well as for other many other female writers of the time, control over the body is of paramount uh, importance, and therefore they try to first establish their own agency and control over their body, then over their poetry, uh, which is a dangerous thing. It's like playing with fire, because if you practically and literally try to get rid of a physical body and recreate another body, that's that's actually what we call suicide. If you do that with the self, with the concept of the self, and if you shatter the unity of the self, that's what we've got in psychosis. So it's a kind of mental illness. And therefore, they resort to a kind of mental illness in order to draw our attention to the reasons why they're driven to this sort of madness. That That's how, you know, their, their literature works. Uh, and this whole idea of death of an author is not in and of itself a new idea because there were other writers who were engaging with this. Not necess- They didn't necessarily call it death of the author, but they sort of erased uh, themselves from the work they were writing or they came to show the uh, constructedness of the work. Uh, you, talk, you discuss writers such as Beckett, Bakov, or John Fowles. Can you discuss that as well? Yeah. Well, actually, Beckett is one of the most um, difficult and complicated ones, the one that uh, who Jacques Derrida almost never talked about because he said because he did exactly what I theorized. Uh, so it, it's important to know that authorship is predicated on the humanist concept or assumption that there is a whole unified, coherent, um, universal, and at the same time autonomous self. So that's, that's a premise. That's a first premise. It's a humanist premise, which is agency and control over um, the individual's thoughts and feelings, which we've got in the romantic uh, poets. Uh, what is poetry? Poetry is the expression of the feelings and thoughts of the self, the person behind it, who precedes these thoughts and feelings. However, with Beckett, Beckett in the 1950s, about more than a decade before what we know as post-structuralism, he, he did what Jack Derrida theorized, really, because his fictional work portrays characters who have lost this sense of unity and autonomy of the self. So in the case of the unnameable, and some people refer to it the unreadable, it's very difficult, uh, this narrator is called the unnameable, uh, constantly hears intrusive voices, voices of others. Uh, it cannot locate the um, the source of these voices. It cannot find the people behind these voices. And that makes these voices um, kind of uncanny or threatening. Um, so, however, these voices are actually the projections of his own psyche. And that shows that there is this crack or a split in his psyche. His psyche is split into multiple selves. Yet, to some degree, he manages to channel these voices and substantialize them into palpable characters and almost uh, a kind of, not quite, a coherent or incoherent story. So here is the therapeutic function of the novel, actually, as it helps the subject with a split psyche gain some agency and control. As you become the author of the voices which are the projections of your psyche, 
And therefore, when, when these voices become characters, you become the writer and you feel more in control. Um, for Nabokov, as for Nabokov, he captures the uh, paranoia and anxiety of living under a constant or a constant surveillance system during the Cold War era in his novel, in his famous novel, Pale Fire. So the, the novel shows that authorship is actually examined as part of the consequences of the projection of uh, one of the main characters, whose name is Kingbot's uh, own seemingly paranoid consciousness onto an external reality, as it, and, and that it just refashions. So it shows another crack on the humanist concept of the self as unified and autonomous. And we can also argue that these two characters in, in Pale Fire, which is uh, Kinbot and Shade, are both projections of Nabokov's own psyche, split psyche, which is, again, a critique of the humanist concept of the self. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Uh, so the fictional world that the novel inhibits is that of a kind of uh, paranoid schizophrenic world which is pitched between some sort of control on the one hand control as authorship and identity and agency on the other and uh, in your book you move on to talk about the age of globalization and how the concept of author was redefined or changed um maybe in response to global crises can you discuss that idea, please? Oh, sure. Uh, we can say that roughly from the 1990s, um, global crises, terrorist attacks, uh, environmental tipping points, economic insecurities, um, as in the case of 2007, 2008, global, uh, sorry, economic crisis, financial crisis, they all produce a demand for a new seriousness. Uh, on the part of the writer, and a new sincerity in the novel, or the end of postmodern playfulness, or ironic playfulness. Uh, it's kind of the death of the self-reflexive irony. So many writers and thinkers, including David Foster Wallace, noticed that the present risks that we're dealing with are global, are different from those of the, let's say, postmodern era. And therefore, they argue that postmodernism is creative, passive, um, has, sorry, has created passive oglers, people who just watch. Um, they constantly watch and almost do nothing. And that postmodernism has, has failed to address and cope with these current global crises. So remember, uncertainty principle. Um, is a principle of postmodernism. And if you're always uncertain about anything, you're not going to do anything, right? So the ironic detachment that postmodernism offers, uh, among other things, has brought about a sense of apathy and cynicism in life and culture. 
So these writers offered a new mode of writing, which is sincere, but also it's an oscillation between a kind of postmodern irony on the one hand and seriousness and sincerity, which is ethically attached versus detached as a kind of solution to the postmodern ironic, apathetic, detached lifestyle. Why some of these novelists? You do talk about some novelists in Chapter 5, such as Hilary Mantor or Salman Rushdie. How do they offer fiction as a therapy for these some of these global uh, crises that you mentioned, for these changing paradigms um, of life? Um, thanks for the question. That's What I've noticed is a kind of... Um... A kind of a revival of, of Victorian spirituality in contemporary fiction. So we can say that all these writers that you just named uh, consider as an author as an ethically committed social, political reformist, uh, the one with a global responsibility to heal the world, which reminds me of uh, 1980s Michael Jackson famous song, Heal the World. You know, it's a kind of global idea. Of responsibility, commitment. So they portray characters who oscillate between mediumship and expressive authorship. So it's like a kind of modernist concept of medium mediumship, as Eliot theorized in um, his famous essay that what is an author is like a medium, like a catalyst, and also a kind of romantic, expressive authorship. So, for example, both Mantle and Rushdie turn to mediumship and a kind of Victorian spirituality. So Mantel's heroine is a kind of shaman um, who connects to benevolent and malevolent spirits. She considers voices. She, she thinks she's a medium between two worlds. Uh, but all these spirits or ghosts are actually projections of her own traumatic uh, state of consciousness. So similarly, Salim in Midnight's, or she's protagonist in Midnight's Children, summons up all the Midnight Children, which are actually voices for the externalization of his own traumatic past. So yet both uh, use this as a capability. They're all mad people, in a sense. Uh, they've got split psyche, they've got uh, mental disorders, all these characters. However, they use it as a kind of capability, which endows them with an empathetic imagination and capability to connect and understand others in a world where people are disconnected and apathetic as a result of, let's say, postmodernism uh, towards each other. Jem uh, Ketsi does, uh, does similarly, however, for some, some other reasons, especially he's, because he's vegan, right? So he also does it to connect and empathize and sympathize with animals. That if we can put ourselves, you know, and we can think ourselves uh, as, as, as another person, and that's what literature is capable of, that we can think as another person thinks, we can sympathize and empathize. We can do that for animals. So he tries to give voice to the minorities or to the invisible. So that's how they try to find, they use their, their kind of like 
mental diseases or mental illnesses among these characters in order to connect and empathize and sympathize with with, with others. This process also is therapeutic for the characters or for the person themselves because it fits many researchers recently done by many professors in psychology and psychiatry uh, that if, for example, if a schizophrenic is put uh, before the voices he or she hears and enters a dialogue with these voices, like Hilary Mantel's character, uh, heroine, who voices, who, sorry, faces and encounters these voices, and some of these voices are those uh, who raped her or actually sexually molest her. So in doing the process, the person finds some healing, some, some therapeutic solution. And then that results in the the number of in the number of times or occasions that the person hears voices actually decreases. So there is a drastic decrease in the um, the occurrence of the voice hearing experiences. And so that that's therapeutic, and that's a kind of cognitive therapy type of thing in also psychotherapy. And what you said makes perfect sense. Uh, people, you know, like lost souls looking for some, so, some source of certainty and anchor to global problems, to uh, economic problems or environmental problems and looking to these authors to provide that. And that might explain even uh, the rise of some pseudo-intellectuals in 21st century, whom I guess you're familiar with, uh, internet celebrities who have that voice of a prophet, right? That I tell you this is the right way, this is the right thing to do. Um, yeah. yeah, you're right, because uh, when you look at the number of books which have to do with, like, spirituality or, like, motivators, or spiritual motivators, and, you know, so there is this kind of, like, re revival of this sort of spirituality as, mm -hmm. as it seems that other, almost to some, like, sciences uh, have failed you know, to cope with global problems. Mm. So that's, yeah, that's the idea. Yeah. Uh, a few months ago, I was talking to someone about the right, the, I forget the name of the book. It was about uh, exotic Orientalism in terms of, you know, Buddhism or Eastern religions providing this sort of exotic spirituality to people. And she used a very nice uh, expression. It's, she said that nowadays people are religious without being uh without having a religion it's it's religiosity without religion and that explains partly the rise of all these uh you know new age things or new age spiritual practices buddhism whatever they want to call it no matter how they worked and different they are from the original <laughs> version of them um just as a last question uh are you working is there is there any other uh, project you're currently working on any books Yes, I'm working on actually multiple things. Uh, one is I'm, I'm looking into functions of metaphors, especially military and medical metaphors, because that's my uh, interest in the medical humanities and the contemporary fiction in the last couple of years, or three or four years, especially a little bit before and during the COVID-19. Uh, so that's one of the things I'm doing. Uh, another thing I'm working on is I'm actually looking into different functions of uh, surveillance in the 21st century, especially with regards to intelligence systems, AI, and how it's different from uh, Michel Foucault's you know, mechanism, uh, especially with regards to um, 
global capitalism and, and democracy. So these are the things that I'm at the moment looking into. Oh, fascinating. I guess we'll be talking to you soon once uh, your new uh, book projects are out. <laughs> Thank you very much. I thank you honored. very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Arya Aryan. And uh, thank you for taking the time to talk with us about your book. Thank you very much for the opportunity and hosting me. Have a very lovely time.